This is the Ballistic Whisper Podcast. Your education, your responsibility. We're here to help. Today's topic is SC4, the Integrated Strength Progression, and I'm Brandon Hetzler. Today our intent is to provide you with the minimal didactic information for you to begin to better implement the Integrated Strength Progression into your care of patients. At the end of this, you will get CEUs once you complete the quiz and the course review online. We will not be getting into any of the technical skills today. At the end of today's lecture, you guys should all be able to appropriately integrate isolated strength work into a systemic progression of strength. You should be able to create appropriate strengthening environments based upon the evaluation of the individual shapes of movement. And you should be able to compare what the individual is currently doing for strengthening to what they should be doing based upon, based upon their movement profile. So when we talk about SC4, um, I think step one, the first thing we need to do is, before addressing what SC4 is, is address what it's not. It's not just mindless, haphazard, purposeless strengthening. Um, in the rehab world, I think one of the pervasive problems that we see every day is the misperception that if we blindly add strength onto something, it's going to make that something better. And that, you know, if we have a strength deficit, then fixing that strength deficit is, is going to fix the problem. And if a muscle's strong, a muscle can do its job. I think 20 years of um, clamshells have told us that that's not necessarily correct. And about the same period of time of banded external shoulder rotation has showed us that maybe isolated strength and randomly adding strength onto things isn't the solution to some of the problems that we're dealing with. SC4 is an integrated progression to increase strength with intent. And that last part, with intent, is important. Um, when we talk about SC4, the S stands for strategy, and the C4 stands for capability, competency, capacity, and conditioning. It's very important to understand that if what we're talking about doesn't occur within one of the 20 shapes or beyond the shapes, then we're not talking about SC4. We're just talking about strength. And there is a difference between strength and intentful strength, the integrated progression of strength, SC4. Um, a great example is a bench press, universally accepted as probably the best overall exercise to increase upper body strength doesn't fall underneath SC4. Yes, it involves long front rack and the row shape in the upper body, but we're laying on the bench. So when we're talking about the bench press, we are increasing strength in a supine position. But I think we all are aware that you stand that person that can bench press 500 pounds up off the bench. I'm not saying that's not a strong individual. But what I am saying is when we stand them up, they're not going to be able to generate as much upper body strength because there's more going on. There's more wiggly parts. 
Same thing with the leg press. I don't want to feel like I'm picking on, you know, not building your testicles. But when we talk about the leg press, it's the same thing. You're either sitting down and pushing into a platform or you're laying on your back, pushing into a platform. Neither one is happening in, in standing. And I don't think we'll find anybody anywhere that will be able to back squat or front squat more than they can leg press. Because when we take away what has to happen with us in a standing posture, we can really get in and isolate some strength. And in both of those instances, we are getting isolated strengthening. Now, not as isolated on the bench press as if we were doing tricep kickbacks or banded chest flies to really isolate the pec major or the clavicular head of the pec, you know, the lateral head of the triceps. That's even more isolated. But the bench press is a is often done in a much more isolated manner than a standing military press, where the standing military press, everything from the floor, your toes, the bottom of the sole of your foot to the top of your head is integrated in that lift. Now, can we make the bench press a little bit more integrated? Absolutely. But no matter what we do, it's still not going to fall into the SC4. I am not saying the bench press is not a valuable exercise. I'm not saying the leg press is not a valuable exercise. But we have to keep in mind where things fall. Those are great ways to create strength, and sometimes that is what we need to do. But when we're talking about strength with intent, it's got to happen within one of our 20 shapes, or within our 20 shapes. And when we talk about intent, intent really comes down to two things when, it come, when we're talking about generating force and creating strength. We're either coming up with the intent to overcome gravity or to overcome friction. Um, if we're talking about overcoming gravity, we're talking about raising and lowering our center of mass towards the ground or away from the ground, or we're talking about placing our hands in a specific position. If we're talking about overcoming friction, we're again talking about placing our hands in a specific position. And we're also talking about moving from point A to point B, physically changing our location in space. And to do that, we have to overcome friction associated with the contact with the ground. The placing our hands in a specific position, that can fall underneath either one depending on what it is that we're trying to, to, to do. So we, that's one where it's kind of a gray zone where we can be working on a little bit of both with that one. So we need to address the language. Um, I told you guys what the S and the four C's stood for. Um, when we talk about, we'll talk about strategies first. Strategies are, by definition, a movement plan or action intended to accomplish a specific goal. That goal being to move the center of mass in space, to overcome gravity or friction, and interact with the environment. We, it's often, when we look at movement, there's tons of options. Um, but when we look at it, when we look at the strategies that we're using, really it comes down to we're implementing one of five strategies in a very contextual situation. How we use those five strategies can be very different and very specific to the task at hand, but it still comes down to one of five strategies. And before we can use those strategies, we have to prog progress within the four C's to get to the point that we can implement and begin to use those strategies. And we begin to use those strategies when we get to the level of capacity. So if we're talking about capacity, let's talk about capability. Capability is the first C. 
and it is the ability to get into a shape. However, it require, to get into that shape requires constant feedback, instruction, and or coaching. But we can get into that shape. You know, it might take some time, it might take some energy, but that individual or we are able to get into that shape. We're not able to repeatedly do it, and it takes constant supervision, but we can get there. Once we've progressed to where we can get into shape on command and it's reproducible, we've transitioned from they're capable to get into the shape to they're competent to get into the shape. They've displayed competency in that shape. We can say, get into the bottom of the deadlift, and they can do that. And they can consistently do that. It is, re it is reproducible. And when we talk about the, the, the 20 shapes, we essentially are looking to see how much competency we can develop within those 20 shapes because the more of those shapes that we have the more potential for capacity we have and capacity is when we start to play connect the dots we're connecting some of those individual shapes that we have competency and we're connecting those together when we talk about capacity we're creating and refining the connection between two or more shapes and by doing this we create a strategy we're moving from the bottom of the deadlift to standing. We're moving from the bottom of the lunge to the standing lunge. We're moving from the row shape to the long front rack shape or the short front rack shape to the long overhead shape. And when we talk about conditioning, what we're doing is we're taking that capacity and we're creating durability and sustainability within that established capacity. So we establish the ability to connect the dots with the capacity and when we, as we add volume, as we add repetition, as we add challenge, and as we add exposure to that, what we end up doing, and as we add variables to that, we're making it very hard to break that connection. We're creating that, sust that sustainability and durability. If we look at this image, you know, movement is messy. You know, th there's, there's rehab and there's performance. When we talk about performance, performance can be going out and playing basketball all day long. It could be going out and working as a roofer all day long, or it could be staying at home, doing normal day-to-day -day activities, putting your hair up in a ponytail, getting dressed, taking out the trash, normal day-to-day -day things. What an individual's performance level is, is going to vary from person to person. But in all of those, regardless of the context, we need to be able to connect as many shapes together as possible to give them the most movement options. So when we talk rehab to performance, rehab, we're really focusing on creating that shape. We're really focused on creating the capability to get into that shape by any means necessary. As we transition into them being able to independently and reproducibly get into that shape on command, we've just developed competency. Like I said, we want to establish as much competency in as many shapes as we can so that we can play connect the dots with our capacity, which allows us to move into the conditioning side of things and establish durability. And conditioning is very heavy on the performance side of things, as is capacity. But there is going to be a little bit of need to pay attention to competency and capability. Just like on the rehab side, we're going to be spending our time in the world of generating capability and competency, but we also need to move into capacity and conditioning just a little bit. 
there's always going to be a little bit of back and forth. It doesn't matter which side of the line you're on. It's not a hard line in the sand. You're going to have to pull out the principles of movement and move back and forth to address whichever of these four you need to address so that you can get that patient back and return them to whatever their goals are. And to do that, we have to create strength with intent. This allows us to do that. So we talk about the strategies. Essentially, the strategies are a combination of five coordinated weight shifts. And we talk about a coordinated weight shift. We've, we've talked about weight shifts before within the neural developmental sequence. This, when we talk about coordinated weight shifts, that's a continuation of that. That is the ability of the central nervous system to coordinate multiple segments of the body, all working together, with intent in a manner that changes the physical location of the individual center of mass. When we talk about one coordinated weight shift, typically we're talking about an upper body push-pull. It can either happen vertically or horizontally in nature. But what happens is the body moves as a single unit from the heels to the shoulder in response to a fixed point or to a load. Um, or we move an item towards or away from the body where the body is functioning as a, as a fixed, as a fixed unit, a fixed point. Um, we essentially are moving our center of mass as one solid unit in response to a, either a fixed point or a load. Um, when we talk about two coordinated weight shifts, we typically are talking about horizontally lowering the center of mass. This is what we see as deadlifting type motions. We're not going to call this a hinge. Um, but in this, what's happening is the shoulders and the hips are working reciprocally to offset each other and lower the center of mass with a trunk that is very horizontal-ish. When we move into the third weight shift, this is where we're vertically lowering the body. We talk about this with words like squatting. And for this, the shoulders and knees are working together to offset the hips so that we can maximally lower our center of mass with a very vertical-ish trunk. So what that ends up looking like, if we look at these three pictures, the picture on the left, somebody doing a pull-up, you can see from their shoulders down to their ankles, they're staying in basically a hanging plank. Um, if this person's feet were on the ground and they were holding a barbell, this would be the bottom of military press instead of the top of a pull-up. But what's happening on the pull-up, this individual is moving their center of mass around that fixed point on the bar as the shoulders are pushing and pulling themselves away. If we were doing a military press, as the bar passes in front of the head, we have to posteriorly shift our entire body from the ankles so that the bar clears our head so that we don't whack ourselves on the bottom of the chin. And then as we lower the bar, we have to repeat the same process. So in each instance, we are moving our body in response to that bar so that we can accomplish the task at hand. The middle picture, Clay is performing a deadlift. And in this, as the hips move forward, the shoulders have to move back and vice versa so that we can raise and lower our center of mass. And the bottom right picture with Eric, as the knees and the shoulders move back, the, knees the hips have to move forward. And then again, vice versa on the way up so that he can keep a vertical trunk while maximally lowering his center of mass. Now, if you were paying attention, you notice I skipped the point fives. Um, one coordinated weight shift, two coordinated weight shifts, three coordinated weight shifts. 
as they are performed, these lifts are typically done in a very symmetrical setup. The feet are doing the same thing, the hands are doing the same thing. The amount of load, weight passing through the hands and the feet is relatively equal. However, there can be situations where we're still doing a deadlift, but we're not doing a perfectly symmetrical deadlift. Our feet might be offset just a little bit. We might be doing something different with our hands. We might be holding one kettlebell in one hand and nothing in the other hand. That's still a deadlift. That's still two coordinated weight shifts, but we've introduced a level of asymmetry to the system. So when we introduce a level of asymmetry to our symmetrical lifts, we had a 0.5 on there because it changes the original movement. It makes it still a deadlift, but it's a little bit different deadlift. And it's not the same as a purely symmetrical deadlift because what's having to happen within the body to offset the torque and the rotation that the offset in the feet, the offset in the hands, or the offset load is creating, there's a lot more torque and rotation we're having to control. We're having to control a lot more forces with these 0.5 weight shifts than with the one, two, or three weight shifts individually. When we talk about four and five coordinated weight shifts, this is where we start to break symmetry in the actual movement. So four coordinated weight shifts is an asymmetrical lowering of the center of mass. We typically see these as split squats, Cossacks, rear foot elevated squats, front foot elevated squats, anything else where the feet are not doing the same thing. It is important to understand that with four coordinated weight shifts, the feet do not move, meaning the feet, the feet do not leave the ground. They stay fixed at their point in the ground. The right lower extremity and the left lower extremity are working opposite of each other to maximally, within the context of our setup, lower our center of mass. In this instance, the fourth weight shift is the ability to control that medial lateral weight shift due to the asymmetrical setup. Now, we can introduce a higher level of asymmetry to this by changing what's going on with our hands and how we're holding the weights or in offsetting where we're holding the weights. If we're holding the kettlebell in our left hand while we're doing a split squat, but nothing in our right hand, we've introduced even more asymmetry to an asymmetrical setup. Still not the same as four coordinated weight shifts, but not a fifth coordinated weight shift. So we're moving into the 4.5 coordinated weight shifts. When we talk about five coordinated weight shifts, this is locomotion or transitioning. This is lunging, stepping up, walking, running, jumping. This is where the physical location and space of our body changes. In this instance, the fifth weight shift is the horizontal change in our actual location in the center of mass. We're moving our center of mass outside of our base of support and reestablishing our base of support. We're actually going somewhere with this. When we look at the pictures here, the pictures on the left, all three of these pictures are examples of four coordinated weight shifts. Um, Cliff in the top left, you can see he's actually demonstrated 4.5 coordinated weight shifts because while his lower body is set up asymmetrically, he's holding a symmetrical load in his upper body asymmetrically. So we have a 4.5, we have an example of 4.5 coordinated weight shifts, but his feet aren't moving. If he were to take that back foot and as he moves away from the ground, if he were to step forward with that back leg, that would move into the fifth coordinated weight shift, but he's not doing that. Picture Dr. Chang performing the Cossack. Upper body symmetrical, lower body is asymmetrical. He doesn't have any outside load. It's a very asymmetrical lower body lift, but very symmetrical upper body wise. So we have a great example of a Cossack here. And the third picture here, individuals holding a dumbbell in front of them, lower body set up asymmetrically, 
rear foot elevated split squat or Bulgarian split squat, whatever you want to call it. But obviously we have two different things going on, lower body, symmetrical upper body, four coordinated weight shifts. On the right of the blue line, that top picture, the individual is performing a box step up. You can see in the second picture there that their back foot is no longer on the ground. They went from two points of contact with the earth to a single point of contact with the earth. They move their center of mass forward onto the box. As they return, they transition back to where they started. In the picture of the runner, you can see lower body is doing something asymmetrically, upper body is doing something asymmetrically, neither feet is on the ground. When that left foot hits the ground, they're going to be reestablishing a very small base of support. They're going to continue to do that for 400 meters and hopefully win the race because they were able to do that faster than the other person. Now, there is not a 5.5 coordinated weight shift because there are multiple ways to get from point A to point B. And the more efficient ways of doing that are all asymmetrical in nature. You can bunny hop from here to wherever you're going. You can do the worm from here to wherever you're going. Any other activity that you do to get from point A to point B is going to be asymmetrical in nature. So when you talk about five coordinated weight shifts, there's so many variations with that. We're just going to leave that as five coordinated weight shifts. Symmetrical or asymmetrical? Um, this is one of those where I think the term asymmetrical has gotten a bad rap. Um, very little in the world is actually truly symmetrical. The human body isn't even symmetrical. We display imperfect symmetry between left side and right side, but our organs aren't symmetrical. Um, our functions aren't symmetrical. So we have to keep in mind that when we're talking about getting somebody back to their everyday life, when we're talking about getting somebody back to work and sport and play, we have to create a level of asymmetry. We need the left side and the right side to be doing the same thing. We need the front and the back to be working together. So we want to create as much symmetry. We want to create symmetrical asymmetry when we're restoring these individuals because symmetrical isn't reality. A sphere is perfectly symmetrical. A tree, there is very little symmetry within a tree. A tree is very asymmetrical. However, when we look at it from a stability standpoint, the wind blows, that tree is not going to go anywhere. It's going to react and respond to its environment. The wind blows, it's going to shift a little bit, but it's going to come back to where it started. The wind blows, and that's a, that sphere is a soccer ball. Who knows where that's going to end up? It's going to be a drift in the wind. It's going to be at the mercy of its environment. It's very, and it's going to do that because it is very unstable. It is constantly searching for stability because symmetry, the, the big flaw of symmetry is stability. If you don't believe me, stand up, find somebody to stand across from you, and you guys are going to try and push each other over. I want you to start out, though, with your feet together right underneath you. First person to win is going to be the person that can offset their feet and generate more force. The loser isn't going to be able to do that as effectively. So when we're talking about this, and especially when we're talking about the coordinated weight shifts, we have to be able to draw that line between symmetrical and asymmetrical. And I think the easier way to think about symmetry and asymmetry isn't as an either or, it's as a continuum. There are very few things on this globe that are actually that actually display perfect symmetry. So 
what we're talking about is varying levels of less symmetrical, varying levels of less symmetry. When we have their left foot and the right foot doing exactly the same thing, we're displaying a very high level of symmetry. Um, we can, and we talk about that and we see that in our shapes where we have a symmetrical setup of our feet. So standing, um, bottom of deadlift, bottom of squat, all of our upper body shapes that we assess with the feet together, all of those are symmetrical setup. All the rest are some degree of offset. All the rest are some degree of asymmetry. We can have an offset stance and we can have a little bit more of an offset stance. We have our open stance and we can have a split stance. What draws the line from three coordinated weight shifts to four coordinated weight shifts? Three coordinated weight shifts you know, being the squat, two coordinated weight shifts being the deadlift. What draws the line and actually makes something the asymmetrical lowering of the body is where that front heel is in relation to the back toe. If the front heel is in line with the back toe and there's no gap between the two, we can still, we're still going to be falling into the one, two, or three coordinated weight shifts. It's less symmetrical than our feet's perfectly next to each other, but it hasn't risen to the level that it makes what we're doing not a squat or not a deadlift. It's just an asymmetrical squat or an asymmetrical deadlift or an asymmetrical military press. But as soon as we extend that front foot forward enough to where there's space, there's distance between our front heel and our back toe, now we moved into the world of asymmetrical. Now we moved into the fourth coordinated weight shift potentially into the fifth coordinated weight shift because we're going to actually start to transition. There has to be a line in the sand. That's the easiest, most objective line that we can draw. And until something better comes out, that's what we're going to operate off of. Where does SC4 fall into the neural developmental sequence? The strategies are just a continuation of our patterns. The shapes are just a continuation of our postures. In all reality, the shapes are just 20 variations of our stance posture. Um, the, uh, the one through four coordinated weight shift strategies, those all allow us to interact with the world that's within arm's length of us. The fifth coordinated weight shift allows us to expand our world and go from point A to point B. Um, I think it is important to understand when we talk about three coordinated weight shifts, the third coordinated weight shift is the plantar flexion dorsiflexion of the ankle that allows a knee to, to go forward. It allows the knees to go forward to work with the shoulders. We don't see that in two coordinated weight shifts of the deadlift. When we talk about the fourth coordinated weight shift, that is that medial lateral balancing. That is controlling the medial lateral shift of our center of mass in relation to our base of support. And then the fifth coordinated weight shift is moving our center of mass outside of our base of support so that we're forced to reestablish a new base of support. Why is it important to understand this? We want to restore the patient's ability to be an optimal human. Do all the things that they need to do in their life contextually to be as, as human as they can be. We want to safely integrate strength in a very purposeful and an intentful manner. We don't just want to blindly add strength to an equation. Research and clinical outcomes have shown us that blindly adding strength is not the solution. We have to be able to do it with intent. We have to be able to do it in a manner that serves purpose. By understanding the 0.5 
in the coordinated weight shifts and the progression of wiggly parts in the coordinated weight shifts, we can create a novel environment, a sensory rich environment that allows their central nervous system to continue to learn and force them to create positive adaptations to get the output and the um, correct adaptation that we want. Then at the end of the day, we ultimately want to decrease pain. Um, how is SC4 going to decrease pain? Well, let's think about that post-op shoulder patient that's been in a sling and that lateral gutter pain, that lateral humeral pain that we get that just seems to be there. What is that? When does it go away? Well, at, we have to keep in mind that with them being, for whatever, and it doesn't really matter what the shoulder procedure was, what surgery they had, what injury they had, they were immobilized, they're in a sling, we're going to see negative adaptations that peak at about two weeks after being in that sling. And over that time, because they're not using the arm the way that they're supposed to use their arm, their deltoid is going to stop being a deltoid. It's going to get little. It's going to atrophy. It's going to shrink. And it's not going to be as strong as it needs to be. Which means now that the deltoid that can't flex the shoulder as well as it needs to flex the shoulder, and because of the insertion and the in, in the origin of the deltoid and because of the fiber links of the deltoid and because of the pination of the deltoid, it is the most efficient flexor of the shoulder that we have. Now, that being said, the corcobrachialis can flex the shoulder. The biceps can flex the shoulder. There are probably a couple other muscles that I'm not able to remember right now that can also flex the shoulder. But the deltoid is the most efficient shoulder flexor that we have. Well, if it's not able to flex the shoulder because it's been immobilized because of whatever the procedure was, we're still going to find a way to flex our shoulder when we have to reach up and do our ponytail. But if the deltoid can't be a deltoid, that means now the biceps is, in addition to trying to be a biceps, it's going to try and be a deltoid. It's going to overreact. It's going to be overactive when we're trying to flex the shoulder because the deltoid is not able to do it and we're going to find a way. We're going to create a negative adaptation that's going to hurt. So because the deltoid isn't able to be a deltoid, the shoulder is going to have to change its entire strategy to generate motor control. It's going to find a way to do that. And when it finds a way to do that, that biceps is not going to be happy because it's busy being a biceps trying to flex the elbow and trying to stabilize the shoulder, not move the shoulder. So we can decrease pain by integrating strength in that very intentful manner. Isolate what we need to isolate and then integrate what we need to integrate. What are some contraindications to SC4? Well, if you have physician restrictions that say they have to do a leg press or they can only squat to 90 degrees or they can't do any strengthening stuff, we're out of luck. Um, maybe we can find some wiggle room in how they've worded their protocol, but if the physician says don't do it, we don't really have much of a workaround. Um, if they have an acute inflammatory response, they have acute pain, if they have a range of motion limitation, if they have a fusion to the point that it's limiting their range of motion, why are we even having a discussion about needing to integrate strength? All of those are going to have a negative impact on, on our ability to create strength with intent and then to integrate it. Um, so if, if any of those are present, strength SC4 is not a priority. We need to focus on those other areas. When we get to the point that those aren't on the table, 
and the physician has allowed us to get in and do some strengthening stuff, then what we have to do is we have to make sure they have the competency within all the shapes that we need to pull off the strategy. Once they have the competency, we can play connect the dots, work on capacity, and then transition them to either a home care program or to phase two, or to a long-term strengthening program where they can work on the conditioning of that. What are the benefits? Create strength in an effective, and here's the key, efficient manner with some speed bumps, those speed bumps being the shapes. Those speed bumps being, let's make sure they can statically maintain this position before we ask them to dynamically move it. And then also it allows us to move from an isolated approach. We're actually doing things to actively isolate the deltoid to more of an integrated approach. Now we're doing things where the deltoid has to contribute to what the arm is doing overall. Um, this fully supports Arm Farm Friday, um, where we get a great biceps and tricep pump on Friday and we integrate everything on Monday after all, after they've got all that hypertrophy going on. Um, it allows us to create strength with intent. We have to know what the patient's goals are and what their problem is. What are we trying to get them back to? What is their performance? Because that then allows us to determine what they need to be able to do, which then allows us to reverse engineer that and figure out what shapes we need to be able to create for them. Um, it allows us to offset what we know causes an increase in mortality. We know that with age, muscle mass and strength decrease. The more that happens, the higher the mortality rate. Falls over the age of 65 population, the leading cause of injury-related deaths are falls. A lot of that comes back to not having adequate strength, not having adequate proprioception and balance. All those are very uniquely different things, but strength is one of the strings that ties all that together in that population. We know that decreased cardiovascular fitness will increase the risk of death, as will interrupted sleep patterns, as will the inability to get up and down off of the floor. Strength has the potential to have a positive impact on each one of those things. So by making people strong with intent, we are literally changing and saving their lives. Requisites, understand the physician's limitations and the surgical procedure if they had a surgery. No acute pain swelling or known range of motion limitations. And at minimum, you need to have competence in the required shapes that you're trying to create a strategy within. The beginning shape, the end shape, the beginning position, the finish position, and then any accessory positions that you might need to hold a weight or stabilize the lower body while you're creating the strategy in the upper body. Things that we struggle with, um, just doing therapeutic activities. That is probably one of the areas that we neglect the most. Preparing patients and transitioning patients into phase two. Phase two is really where we can get into the capacity and the conditioning of the strategies. However, to effectively be able to do that, we need to develop the capability and the competency first. And we need to get into the strategies just a little bit. We need to get into the capacity just a little bit. The question I'm going to leave on the table is if someone fails all of the critical shapes, is the discussion of phase two really the right discussion to be having with that patient? How do we document this? We document the shapes. We document the strategies. We can't use abbreviations, so you can't write CWS. You have to write one coordinated weight shift, vertical push-pull progression, whatever you want to call it. I think from, a intent stamp, from an intent standpoint, it's going to be valuable for us to document which one of the four C's is our emphasis. We're working on creating capability in the bottom of the lunge. We're working on creating and establishing capability or competency, 
capability transitioning into competency of long overhead. We are working on conditioning of the row to long front rack. From a billing standpoint, like everything else, our billing has to match our intent. These are all INGs. This is going to universally fall underneath therapeutic activity. You're squatting, you're deadlifting, you're lunging, you're cosacking, you're TRXing. I don't even know if that's a thing, but it's going to fall underneath therapeutic activities. Can we find a place for this under neuro reeducation? We can. It's just much cleaner to put it under therapeutic exercise. All right, so next, demonstrate your competency in the knowledge of the shapes. What does that mean? It means you understand the 20 shapes. It, it means you understand how to mix and match those shapes together. We're going to continue to work on this. Um, it's also understand. To, it's also important to understand the regression of the shapes down into the postures and patterns so that when you don't have bottom of the lunge, we can progress all the way down to the ground and we can develop that from the ground up. If you have any questions, reach out to me. Otherwise, enjoy. If you would like to know to accompany today's show, as well as the QR code that will give you access to the quiz to get your CEUs, follow the link in today's show notes.